Hello, and welcome to Artfully Told, where we share true stories about meaningful encounters with art. I think artists help people have different perspectives on every aspect of life. All I can do is put my part out into the world. It doesn't have to be perfect the first time. It doesn't have to be perfect ever, really. I mean, as long as you, you're enjoying doing it and you're trying your best, that can be good enough. Art is something that you can experience with your senses and that you just experience as, as so beautiful. Hi, Artfully Told listeners. It's Lindsay here. Hey, I just want to quickly let you know something before our episode begins, and that is that this interview was awesome. I had so much fun talking with my guests today, and I know you are absolutely going to love Darnell as well. And hey, we had so many good things to talk about, and the interview lasted a lot longer than is typical for Artfully Told listeners. So I just wanted to give you a heads up to let you know that I've actually broken this into two parts. So you're going to get part one today and then part two next week. And I just want you to know that ahead of time before we dive in. And I cannot wait to share Darnell with you. And I know you're just going to absolutely love everything he has to say as well. Thank you so much. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Artfully Told. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I am so very excited to have as my guest today, Darnell Pierre Benjamin. He is a performing artist. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course. And I know that performing artist barely scratches the surface of all the different things that you do. So I would love if you would just share a little bit about maybe who you are and your background and kind of all the different things you're doing now. Sure. And, uh, you know, and I'll say all the things I try to do, (laughs) I'll definitely say. I'm originally from uh, southern Louisiana, a small town by the name of St. Martinville. And I started dancing at around 14, mainly because I came from a family that was already very big into music and dancing. And the short version is that it was actually in therapy that I basically got coached by my therapist to explore some movement things. We were just playing with movement. And that's when I learned that for some reason, movement became a a, a sort of balancing act for me, a a centering place. And so I started out doing some modern dance and that got me into playing with some ballet and fast forward to high school, start playing with the speech and debate team and helping with the plays. And then on a whim, like no joke, it was very much at the last minute, two weeks before starting college, I decided to change my major from what was going to be aiming towards criminal psychology to theater. (laughs) And I changed it to theater. And while in the program, I was realizing that I was getting just as many dance credits as I was getting theater credits. So that's when I just realized, oh, I'm going to just be a performing arts major (laughs) because I was bouncing around between the two of those. And that's when I started getting in love with also Shakespeare and language and words and how they words dance in their own way as well. So that's when I got into Shakespeare. I ended up going to grad school at University of Houston, got my MFA, and the program particularly looks at the work through the lens of classical theater, specifically Shakespeare we focused on a lot. And it's a movement-oriented program, so it was perfect for me. 
And now, I mean, I just kind of, right now, I just juggle between acting, dancing, choreographing, directing, and teaching. So, you know, I, I got a bit of advice many, many years ago from a professor who told me to broaden the brand. Whatever you want to do, do it. Who's stopping you? And that really stuck with me. And so now I just like to pretend my way through things. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yes. Well, and obviously you're not just pretending your way through things. You've been very successful, which is fantastic, but we all have to start somewhere. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's what I mean by pretend is that, you know, it's, I remember the first time I started to choreograph when I really started in the beginning, because as a dancer, you know, have your, you have your awareness of your body and your body and what your body can do, but you don't necessarily think about other people's bodies. You do when you're working with them, but how to create movement for other people's bodies. And that became a whole learning curve for me. And I caught on pretty quickly and I realized that, okay, because I, I think I have my strength in choreography is that I, I think I have a good eye and I think I'm not afraid to lean into storytelling. I'm very inspired by like, for example, there's that dance group Palabolus, who is like one of my top, one of my favorite dance companies. I, I love the type of work that they do because they don't just look at the technical aspect of dancing. They also look at the storytelling. They look at what does this one angle of the body mean versus another. So I'm very inspired by that kind of work. Yeah, absolutely. So you started as a dancer and it was in your teens. And so you had mentioned doing modern and ballet. And so did you continue to explore those two or have you also branched into some other dance styles as well? Oh, definitely. Yeah, a little bit of both. So I started out in those two and I always struggled with ballet. And yeah, no, I was told early on, you just don't have the feet. <laughs> and Aww. so and so that kind of got in my head for a long time. But then I noticed I had a, a facility and comfort with modern dance and contemporary world. And that opened the door to me even playing with some jazz. And that's really where I probably think my personal movement style sits the best. And that opened also to some tap I'm pretty decent at tap. And then I started playing with some ballroom dance and I did well at that. And when I say well, keep in mind, I am, I would say that I think I'm a better freestyle dancer than I am, like, don't get me wrong, choreo that sits in the world of modern jazz. I am ready to go. Even some hip hop, I'm ready to go. But ballet is it i've it's really hard for me and and i i've been trying over the years to figure out what is the wall and some of that i think it's a mental block because i have in my head from that one person who told me you just don't have the feet oh man <laughs> yeah and so now it's the one that i'm afraid of the most to be perfectly honest ballet terrifies me Oh, well, that is so funny you say that because ballet is my forte. I absolutely love it. I think it's absolutely wonderful. <laughs> but I'm I'm the opposite of somebody's like here's this really abstract modern piece or or even worse, <laughs> here's this hip hop piece. I'll be like I don't think you want me. <laughs> and that's, no, and you know, I, I totally, like, I, I guess, you know, on the opposite and I can relate because I think what is so amazing, I love watching ballet mainly because I love watching something so technical that's done so freely 
when it's done well, you know, when somebody really is just breathing in it, for me, I found that I, I was having a hard time with allowing myself to breathe. I get very tense with ballet work. And we all know that type of tension is not going to be useful for that type of work. So that was always my issue. But the freedom or what I'm perceiving rather as being freedom in, for example, modern dance. I think what why I gravitate towards that is because I'm so story oriented. So and in contorting my body and moving it in, you know, anything from like, for example, a flexed foot is exciting to me because I'm like, oh, what does that mean? And so <laughs> I find myself digging into the story of modern dance. And it's not that, by the way, and please, don't, I don't want to make this sound like I'm saying there, there aren't stories with ballet because there are absolutely absolutely some fantastic stories. It's just that I have a hard time allowing my brain to turn off when I'm doing ballet. I really do have a hard time with it. Yeah, that makes complete sense. I think it's easy in whatever genre that that doesn't come as naturally or um, as easily or whatever to you to have that in your head aspect of oh my goodness, I'm just trying to focus on the technical aspects and remember my choreography. So I think that's like completely normal for any dancer for sure. And probably <laughs> for a lot of artists who are dabbling and, you know, trying to like expand a little bit. If you're out of your element, you don't feel as free just in general, I think. Yes. So, yeah. And also the other side of that is, you know, to be absolutely real, I'm 37 and we all know what the body, like ballet at 37 is a very different thing, especially if you've been away from it for so long. But I keep saying one of these days, I am definitely going to get back into a class because I would love to just go back to the basics. I don't know about you. I love bar work. I love just being there in the classroom and just doing the work. That's when I'm not thinking as much. It's when I'm performing it that I get in my head. Fair enough. Yes. I absolutely love bar work as well. It's like there's something so just exciting, but also safe or which is kind of a funny way to put it, but it's just this like feeling of home. It's like, okay, we're going to start back in the bar every time we're going to start with our plies. It's like having this, this predictable, really well thought through formula. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And when you're in that work session, it's really all about you. You just get to focus on your body. I mean, for example, I'm right now teaching at Northern Kentucky University and I'm teaching a movement for the actor class and the students were working on some Tadashi Suzuki technique. And it's a very focused technique. It's very, actually, I would compare it to ballet in the sense of it's all about being very specific in getting to the shape. What is the shape, the specific shape? But where it's a little different is that well, and it may not be that different, really, is that it's all about getting there faster, sooner, better. And it's about being able to train your body to know where that shape is without having to think about it. So that way you can just sit into it. And so working on that with my students right now, it's totally bringing me back to I feel like I'm in a ballet class. Yeah. And so I'm actually curious, you kind of touched on something. Do you feel that being a teacher and learning how to break things down for different students with different learning styles has helped you be a better dancer and mover? Oh my goodness. Do you know, I, I firmly believe that the best way to truly test 
your knowledge of your work and your knowledge of your body and your truth of your creative spirit is by teaching. Because when you have to navigate working with different bodies and different abilities and different levels of understanding and to try to get them all on the same page, but you have to use different methods for each person, it's impossible to not be able to reflect that on your own work. Because I know for me, those students teach me something different every single day, every day. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It's so funny because sometimes professional dancers or pre-professional aspiring dancers will ask me questions like, what do you think, you know, is something that I should do in this endeavor? And I always say teach because I think when I started teaching, it it forced me, I suppose, to astronomically develop my own technique and to go back to basics and realize, well, I'm telling you this, I better do this too. You know, (laughs) it's just so funny. And uh, yeah, that's just such a big piece of advice. I always give people is teach, learn to teach, and then you'll, you'll become a better dancer yourself or artist or whatever, you know, it's, yeah, it's like when you have to break down all the fundamentals, you're like, oh yeah, huh. I should probably do that too. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Oh my goodness. And you know, and I also try to be really honest with my students and tell them, hey, that whole, you know, I'm sure you've been told this. We've all been told this when you um, start off in the arts young. And especially I think about like, you know, that fresh out of high school, going to college or going to a studio, whatever direction the person goes. And there is the emphasis goes a lot on discipline, you know. And I know I think back to the time when I first taught Uh, a class and specifically first taught a dance class, I found myself on the first day making mistakes I never make. And I remember beating myself up so much. And what I realized afterwards was that I started getting in my head and I started forgetting what I knew. And I started doubting myself and putting all of, and I was trying to be, I think I was trying to be the instructor I thought I needed to be, as opposed to truly just trust your craft and I learned a lot about myself that semester, teaching and, and and also being challenged to not only just teach, but consistency. You know what I mean? Being able to fully show up and be honest with those students and tell them, hey, there is this expectation that we are supposed to always be in the, the, the right space, quote unquote, you know what I mean, as artists. And when we go to do our performances, we still have to give those people the same show we gave the ones the night before and the night before and the night before, regardless of what baggage you're bringing into the room. But what I've tried with my students to really open the door to is having a conversation with where are you today, particularly in class, if you are in a space where you're not maybe, let's say you didn't sleep well, let's say you didn't drink enough water, let's say the list goes on, what can you focus on? You, maybe you can't focus on the whole, but can you focus on one thing specifically? Because you got to remember that that classroom, whether you're the instructor or the student, it's your time. And what are you doing with your time? If you're wasting it, that's on you. I mean, I, I put a lot of accountability on my students to challenge them to accept the fact that they may not be in the best place on that given day, but you still owe yourself the time and effort to focus on something. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. I love the way that you put that. And I think one thing that stood out to me was you mentioned basically the word honesty. And I thought about that too, where 
it's <laughs> I'm sure many teachers can relate to this too, if they're being honest with themselves. But it's so interesting that I had to learn as a teacher to be very just <laughs> honest with my students too. And like you said, some days are off days. And even as a teacher, and I don't want to bring that into my classroom, but at the same time, there are days I fall out of every single pirouette that I try, right? Mm -hmm. And I like to call those high gravity days, but the reality is, <laughs> you know, some days things work and some don't, but I think that's bringing in the humanity of the arts and the, the reality of the arts is you do your best, you show up every single day, you do your best, but then you just keep trying and the next day you come back and you do it again. And not every day is going to be the most, you know, ah, success day, but, yeah, seriously, but you keep I, showing up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I feel like what it does, I, I found that teaching with that perspective has made my students better by the end of the semester because they are being accountable for themselves. Because like, for example, in this you know, environment where we're teaching virtually, I know that some of my students are not committing 100% to what we're working on. I know they're not truly going there, but it's not all of them. And it's not all the time, the same people. So what I told them is that it's on you. You know, you know, when you're there and you know, when you're not like, for example, I'm teaching an auditions class, a movement class, and a, a sort of a musical theater intensive for high school students. So in those three different worlds, those are three different types of people, you know, very much so. But I told them in all three situations, this is an auditions class, this is a movement class, and this is a musical theater intensive. You chose to take this class. So there's something you want to work on. And all three of those have to do with being prepared at the end of the day. <laughs> so if you're not going to do the work, I mean, who can you blame? And so it, what I've noticed is that pushing my students to really take responsibility has made them actually be better at self-evaluations, be better at final products, because they know where they sort of, I guess, sat back and it's showing up in their performances and they're able to comment on it in reflection papers. And I, for me, there's no greater joy than when I can read something a student wrote or even in you know verbal format, hearing them be honest about their craft. Because we all know, like, I mean, the business is hard enough. The last thing you want to do is go pointing fingers elsewhere, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that's really important. It's a great life skill to help them develop, too, of take responsibility for, for yourself. You're in charge of your life. That's very cool. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's fun. It's fun. And there are good days and there are bad days because sometimes these, you know, right now with a pandemic going on, mental health conversations are happening a lot more. And my students are being very forthright with where they are as individuals, particularly last semester. I mean, I had a lot of students reach out about some things that are going on. And, and I'm like, how much can we as, you know, ultimately mentors give them enough tool sets to be able to truly not only be honest about their work, but also be able to keep track of it, 
to log it and be aware of if there's something consistent. Are you consistently having an issue with something? Are you consistently not showing up to class? Whatever it is, whatever that consistent thing is, if it's not on the positive end, what are you doing to change that? You know, and that's that's where I get excited whenever I can see my students grow, not only as performers, but also as young adults, you know, that's, that's what a joy. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I've been reflecting on teaching methods and philosophy a lot lately. And I think that there's nothing greater than that. It's, it's so cool to witness those light bulb moments and, and oh my those, God, yes. right. So when something finally clicks and it's like, oh yes, <laughs> you get that. It's so fun. It's so yeah, it's great. And then the other thing I've been noticing too, is just how special it is when students don't realize how much more they have and you're able to kind of show them that. And then it's like this, you just watch the transformation on their face, you know, like, oh, I I can turn out that much or I can go that much higher on my releve or whatever it is. And then them realizing that they have all of this. And I, I just, that's just such a cool thing too. <laughs> yes, yes. I have a friend right now in Seattle who is doing this uh, research project, particularly on movement, actor movement techniques, but specifically from the perspective of risk, the concept of risk. Are you actually taking a risk with your work, whether that's in the classroom or in performance? Are you really throwing yourself into it and falling flat on your face so that way you can learn something. But, you know, even relative to the Suzuki method, which is all about push trusting that your body can go further than you think it can. And that's not, of course, in a way of abusing the body, not at all. It's more a matter of like even thinking about the turnout thing. Most recently, I made a post on Facebook about how I was asking for advice because I've always had sort of really tight hips and really getting myself to truly let the legs actually turn out and not force it, but also not halfway go there. I got a lot of great tips. And let me tell you, I realized something. It's not that I had such a, a hard time doing it. It was discipline. I was not like going at it every day. I was really not truly committing to it and taking that risk to throw myself in far enough. And the results have been fantastic because I've been doing it every single day. I've set a time for stretching. I've set a time for breathing exercises. And I've set a time for just really challenging and going, challenging my body and going there. Because, you know, I mean, obviously I've been in this body and dancing and uh, movement work in general for a while. So I know what my sort of quote unquote safe limitations are, but I've been really trying to push towards the riskier limitations. How far can I take it? How much can I do within the bounds of reason, of course, but I'm, I'm noticing all kinds of great results. And it, it goes to show that sometimes what it boils down to is discipline, you know? Yes. Amen to that. You're right. <laughs> and especially as a ballet dancer, I am sure oh. you know what I mean. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it is definitely the whole idea of consistently showing up and yes. Yep. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, so then, you know, you've also had an acting career kind of alongside it sounds like. So you said you had done a lot of Shakespeare work. Is that something that you've 
gravitated towards more? Do you do all sorts of different theater or or how did that whole come about? Oh, yeah. So in, in high school, I was in I was one of those nerdy kids in the AP English class and we did not do any Shakespeare. And I remember being a little confused by that because I assumed we should have. Fast forward to in college, I had my first experience with Shakespeare and I loved it immediately. I'm a person who is very fascinated with language. I'm very fascinated with alliteration, linguistics in general, anything that is about the exploration of the sounds of words and how those sounds affect meaning. For example, like phonetics, all that stuff. I'm fascinated with that. So Shakespeare was like the motherland when I came across it. And that kind of opened the door to me making the decision. That's partly why I went to grad school because I wanted more training in Shakespeare. I wanted to get better at it because I'll share a little story with you. I went to University of Louisiana at Lafayette, go Cajuns. And <laughs> I'll tell you what, I, I'm going to share this story and I don't say this for any to, with any hate towards the university, but in the undergraduate program, specifically uh, getting my BFA in performing arts, one of the professors there at the time he he taught all of this sort of, you know, the stagecraft and the lighting, the tech side. And he was also going to be the one directing Taming of the Shrew. And I was so excited. It was going to be a summer production, which I was like, oh, my goodness, this is fun. <laughs> and they opened it up to the general public. So a bunch of people came and auditioned for this. And we all watched each other audition. That was the worst part about it. Let me tell you, I could not be bothered with that. Watching people go one after another, Ooh. getting antsy. <laughs> but I'm watching people go and I'm like, okay, all right. I'm not like the worst one here. We're going to be all right. <laughs> and not even in a bad, I didn't mean that in a mean way, even when I thought that. I, it was just more of a, okay, I maybe could actually get a shot at this. And I went up there, did my thing, felt really good. And noticed the, the callback list went up a couple of days later. My name wasn't on it. And I kind of was like, eh, okay, that kind of sucks, whatever. But maybe I might still get cast because, you know, there's always the chance just because you're not called back doesn't mean you didn't get it. So fast forward to the cast list going up and I am looking for my name, looking for my name all the way at the bottom. Hey, I'm the haberdasher. Well, when I saw that and I noticed there were people who, and again, you know, there's so many things that go into this is taste, who knows. But there were so many people who, like, I mean, some of them didn't even, were not off book at their audition. Some of them who just did, it's almost like they kind of got teleported into a theater. They had no idea what was going on. And so I was disappointed that I, I, I'd gotten this role. So I talked to the stage manager who eventually told me that the instructor ultimately, and the one who was going, and by the way, this is one of my instructors, and this was the person who was directing that show. He said that, well, I just don't see Black people in Shakespeare unless they're slaves. So that obviously oh. was like, whoa, I went to talk to the dean, and I was asked to go back down the, ch the ladder and go talk to the head of the department, who was new at the time. So he's like, hey, you're going to have to go talk to the dean. I kind of don't have my footing. I don't know any of these people. So I'm giving you permission to climb up and go talk to the dean. So I went to talk to the dean and found out later that there were 
all of these cases piling up against this person, everything from sexual harassment to racism to, I mean, it was across the board. And eventually this professor got fired. Yay. But <laughs> but what it ultimately did, it it lit a fire under me. And I think I wanted to prove him wrong. That's how it started. It started with me yeah. having so much passion for the language and being told that and being hit so hard by that. And so I made a decision that I was really going to dig into this and like start to understand it because I really started researching and thinking about it. And I'm like, oh, wow, there really isn't a lot of black and brown representation in Shakespeare that I'm seeing. So it became a mission of mine because I never wanted another kid to feel like I felt. I mean, and so I ended up going to University of Houston, in which, my goodness, I will say this for any listeners, if you are a physically inclined actor who is strong with language and want to even get stronger, that is a great program. The, the work is very physically inclined, but also very see, hear, smell, touch, touch, detail inclined. But fast forward to I finished there. I graduated in 2009 with my MFA, and then I bounced around a little bit, landed in Cincinnati, and I started working with the Cincinnati Shakespeare Company in 2010-11 season, and I've been working there as a resident actor since then. I've also, you know, done some Shakespeare elsewhere, but like that's the company that has been my home base with doing Shakespeare, and so Shakespeare is one of the things I do. I love experimental work. I love, I mean, actually it was an experimental company that moved me to Cincinnati. The No Theater of Cincinnati moved me there. And they're kind of, they call themselves the alternative playground. And they do a lot of fun alternative work. So, and now as far as my own personal, sort of what the stuff that I produce and I do on my own, I'm very much what I call, you know, just I'm an arts activist. I love looking at social issues and how we can use art to further the conversation and deepen it. So a lot of my approach is from a, a social issues perspective. And I love, love the movement of expressionism. So that inspires a lot of my work. I mean, come on, can we please talk about Peter Bausch, right? <laughs> Seriously, yes. that kind of work gets me so excited. I love I love when people um, can, especially in dance, I love when we can see people turn on its head what we define as dance. Because the question becomes, what is dance? And what is the difference between dance and movement? I love exploring that middle ground and taking pedestrian things and turning them into dance and exploring how they can be seen as dance. So I guess across the board, whether as an actor or a dancer, I'm very much about looking into, I don't know, I, I guess I, I'm research driven. I love exploring and understanding and taking those little risks that, you know, may not work always, but more often than not, I love that it creates a conversation, you know? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, of course. That's one of the most wonderful things about art is that it does and can create and spark conversation. And that's pretty special because that's that's when you really get into all the exciting aspects and what did the artist intend or what did you gather from it? I mean, because both of those things are important. And so 
Yeah, of course. Right? Absolutely. I mean, I even hate whenever I do my work, it's so important to me to make sure that I'm not telling my audience how to feel. I love to challenge the audience, whether that's through theater or dance. I definitely, when it comes down to dance, I'm very inspired by also Mary Overly and looking at viewpoints and exploring that to even create. So that way I don't, because, you know, we all have the you know, we all have our tricks, the things that we're good at and that we can pull out at the drop of a dime. But I love figuring out, okay, all right, which of these viewpoints do I suck at? Let's start playing with that. So that's something nice. I like to try and do at, you know, and, and let's be real. Sometimes it's a pass and sometimes it's a fail. <laughs> Yes, of course. But you never know until you try. <laughs> exactly. And failure is fun. Failure is how we have an opportunity to learn, of course, and, and, and try something different. You know, yeah. So for me, it's like failure is just an opportunity to learn something. Yes. And that's a great perspective. So you had mentioned kind of briefly in passing, you you mentioned kind of the expressionist movement. That's something that really compels you. But I wonder if you could just define that a little bit more and talk about what exactly you see that as being, just since we might not all be familiar with that. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. I know a lot of people are familiar with, you know, the Scream painting, and, and that is from like an expressionist piece. It Ultimately, and you know, the best way I could describe it, obviously, it's in the way that I understand it and how I perceive expressionist movement being is digging into the feeling. What is the feeling that this art wants to portray? And instead of going from, you know, a linear direction with here is a story with a beginning, middle and end, whether that's a, a play or, for example, with a piece of art, you can just, you know, you can draw, for example, paint the Mona Lisa but or what you can do, you can paint what Mona Lisa feels like. What is, what is it that you want that piece of art to evoke? What is that feeling at the core? And that's for me what expressionism is. It's about really tapping into not focusing on what we know as our realistic world, but instead exploring what is this world, this specific world in this piece of art and letting that tell the story? Like, for example, a contemporary, oh, well, not that contemporary, but Edward Scissorhands. That's a, that's a perfect expressionist film because it created a world that was, yes, we recognize that these are human beings, but the distortion of the character of Edward, even thinking about the, those bushes and how he would make these pieces of art with these bushes and that big castle that he lived in, all of that is very expressionism. You have, of course, the iconic film that most people know because it all stems from Germany. There's a lot of stuff out there that explores the exaggeration of things to tell the truth of what that story is. And as far as in my personal work, I actually got to do my first film. I directed and choreographed a film, which is kind of mind blowing that that even happened. But so I was I was inspired by so in since so I'm in Cincinnati, Ohio, and there were in 2001 there was the murder of a young black man, but 19 years old, by the name of Timothy Timothy Thomas, and this was a kid who had a bunch of you know minor parking violations, things like that, tickets, stuff like that, and he was followed. And he started running and he ran down this alley. Long story short, 
he there are a lot of different reports of what possibly happened but the gist of it is that he was trying to lift up his pants to climb over a fence and he was shot because they thought he was going to be reaching into his pocket for a gun and we all know we are in the midst of another round of this movement of the black lives matter conversation and this has happened far too often, we know. This happened back in 2001, and prior to that, there was a man by the name of Roger Owensby Jr., where this happened in Cincinnati. So for me, I started looking at the repetition of this conversation and how we keep circling back to it. And instead of and, – and what what I found myself leaning towards is we keep talking about it in this sort of sense of understanding of, look – this here's point A, here's point B. This is what happened. This is the result. And I think it's a lot richer than that and a lot deeper than that. I started leaning into the direction of mental health. And that's, I think, at the core of the problem. And so I started thinking about over time, what are the effects of this repeated trauma on the Black community? And how are the ways that it manifests itself? And that's when I started, you know, putting this piece together. And thank goodness, the company Walter Hoop, which is an amazing company, please check them out, walterhoop.com. They are an arts organization that plays in all the different mediums. They play in with podcasts. They play with theater. They do live productions, dance recently with this film that I did. And they, they wanted to produce this and we collaborated. The music is insane. And the music matched up immediately with this concept I wanted to play with, which was thinking about how can we have this conversation, but look at it through the lens of mental health. So every single shot for me had to be, it was important that the choreography, the writing, which was, which was uh, done by Tyrone Williams, and it's uh, a sort of, it's ultimately poetry. I, I wanted it all to feel abstract. I wanted it to feel familiar, but not. I wanted it to feel claustrophobic. I wanted it to feel all these things that heighten our emotions. And, you know, and also in the midst of all that conversation, I wanted there to be joy despite all of the, the hurt, the lack of understanding. So, at the end of the film, there's a, it, it sort of kind of goes through an evolution. Now, granted, I didn't go, if, for anybody who might see this film, which is called 13th of Republic, I, if you are familiar with expressionism, please know that I didn't go like hardcore literal expressionism all in. <laughs> no, I actually played with a mixture of finding, pulling the things from expressionism that worked for me, which was looking at the feeling. What do I want? What is this feeling and how can I create that through movement? How can I create that through text? That's kind of how I lean into it. Because a lot of expressionism, you're not going to have traditional scenery. A lot of my scenery in the film is very much actual streets and actual grass and actual parks. But where I kind of went more towards an expressionist direction in terms of scenery, it was in two scenes where I played with what is it, what would it look like if we're inside of the main character's head? What does that look like? So there's this, there's a couple scenes where I leaned into that. But yeah, that's, that's overall how I would describe expressionism and how I utilize it. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> that was perfect. And First of all, oh my goodness, congratulations. That is such a huge accomplishment to have gotten to work on that film and 
Holy cow, that is huge. Congratulations and 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 kudos to you for starting that conversation and addressing things that really need to be talked about. And I so admire what you said. Your intentionality behind the way that those scenes were portrayed and everything is just so amazing. I love hearing the background behind it and and why you chose things the way you did, but also, you know, choosing to bring out an element of joy despite everything, I think is just huge. So, oh my gosh, I cannot personally wait to see this film. <laughs> Where can we watch this film? Oh, yes. You can go to 13thandrepublic.com. And so that's one, three, and, and spell out and, A-N-D, Republic. Dot com And that's where you can go check it out. And it's an interactive website. That's the really cool thing is that Walter Hoop wanted to make sure that – because originally this was going to be a live production, but we are in the midst of a pandemic, and that's why we did it as a film. And even the film, just in case anybody's wondering, we did it in August, and it was done absolutely with every bit of social distancing and safety in mind. And I found a way even <laughs> to incorporate masks in the show, <laughs> in the film. So I wow. found a way to do that. So I, we went through a lot of lengths to make sure that because, you know, it will be very ironic if you have these uh, this cast of five black actors and dancers performing and they get COVID. You know what I mean? That was not going to happen. So it was very important. <laughs> it was very important to me to make sure that they were safe and not even just them, but also me. And as far as this film, you know, I thank you for even like, because it's, it really is mind blowing to me because it's funny how life has a way of surprising you. Here we are in the midst of a pandemic and we were working on, I mean, this film was being worked on prior to the pandemic. We uh, were prepping for filming and then the pandemic hit and we had to push filming back, but the rehearsals had to get pushed back for what was going to be a live production because you can't, in my opinion, you know, when you want to talk about social issues and you want to talk about how do we manage this? And the only way we can manage this is to have the conversation. And part of that conversation is a communal experience. And we couldn't have that because of the pandemic. So I'm really excited to share this information that I applied for a grant through a local organization here called ArtsWave. And they had this grant for what they called a truth and reconciliation grant. And I got one of those. And so the goal is that we're going to, we connect it with an organization. I can't say who yet because it's not public just yet, but we connect it with an organization where we're going to take the film out of the urban downtown areas and bring it into the suburbs and the rural areas as part of a um, showcase of the film. And there's going to be a live element involved with it. And also there's going to be a Q&A where we get to actually interact with the people who are outside of the thick of, you know, a city council and the courthouse and all of that world. And so it's really, because for me, the reason why I do what I do is to truly, truly have the conversation. And the only way we can do that is if we step out of our comfort zones and take that risk. And part of the risk for me was getting away from the place that I know and from the people that already know what I do and going out into these neighborhoods where hopefully we will get welcomed. And obviously there's the chance that we will not. But the way I'm looking at it is that if I don't do this, I'm not doing this film 
the, the service it deserves, which is to be seen by the people who are not having these conversations, to be seen by the people who maybe disagree with this conversation. But how nice would it be if we can actually have a dialogue? So that's that's kind of the next phase of it, which I'm really excited about. But yes, just as a reminder, that's 13andrepublic.com. And it's an interactive website. So check it out. You get to, uh, there are some interviews that are really cool where we interviewed the cast members to get their perspective and also the the people on the creative team. So across the board, it, it's, it's beyond me because in my experience of creating, this is the first time I have ever gotten to do something exactly the way I wanted to do it and absolutely being truthful to not only my personal mission as an artist, but to who I am as a as a black queer man. So for me, I've never been prouder of something because it's it's truly every internal experience thought that I've had in a film. It's kind of terrifying because in some ways it's a little so vulnerable. It feels a little kind of invasive to share it, but it needed to be shared. And I think that I I can't wait till we start having the conversation of mental health in in tandem with conversations on social issues because they're not separate it's all connected and i i can't wait till we see to see more artists more scholars more across the board people finding ways to connect those dots and really dig into the heart of what's going on within each of these social issues yeah Oh, my word. Well, I, I'm just sitting here smiling. Congratulations. This is so cool. Everything that you're doing and just congratulations on this grant and this new opportunity to expand your reach and to step out of your comfort zone. And oh, my goodness, I commend you. It's it's hard to be that vulnerable and to put Oof. yourself out there. Oh, my word. But that but telling who you are and your truth and your story that is so compelling and that's going to i just know that's going to have an impact on people's lives it's going to spark those conversations that will hopefully actually make some change happen and just think that you are a huge part of that that is so cool because you had the courage to be vulnerable so Oh, my word. So much respect. Kudos to you. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Thank you. That's very kind. That's all for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it with your friends. If you'd leave us a review and rating and subscribe to our podcast, you'll get notified when the newest episodes come out. Thank you for sharing art with us, and we hope your day has been artfully told. Hey, Artfully Told listeners, Lindsay here, and I just want to share with you a little bit more about the Speak Easy method. Now, if you've had a chance to listen to Greg Gonzalez's interview on Artfully Told, you're already a little familiar with the process that is so unique, and that is the Speak Easy method. It is for people who are ready to write their books, but maybe aren't super confident about their own writing ability or just want a more streamlined way of doing it. Greg and his team at SpeakEasy are experts at these amazing questions that help your authentic voice to shine through. So what they do is they go through recorded audio interviews with you, and these 
recordings are then transcribed and put into manuscript format, ready to go. So what's cool about that is instead of months and months or years and years of you writing a book, they will actually take you from concept to published, and it can be as little as nine months. That is one of the most recent success stories that they have accomplished, and it is just a really innovative method that I am personally so excited to help represent and help share the word about because what Greg and his team are doing is absolutely life-changing for prospective authors, and I highly encourage you to book a discovery call with Greg or another member of his team to learn more and see if this could be the perfect fit for you. It's 100% complimentary, and you can do so easily by going to his website, and that's www.joyfulliving.com slash speakeasy. And again, that spelled out is J O Y dash f u l dash living dot com slash speakeasy.